Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in the Middle East as part of a multi-country trip to curb Israeli attacks on Palestinians in Gaza and prevent a wider war in the region. Today, he talked with Saudi Arabia about normalizing ties with Israel. Blinken's latest diplomatic push coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta on why it took the Pentagon three days to tell the White House that current Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was hospitalized. Former U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn had to fight back rioters January 6th, and he still worries about the threats that face the country. I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that we're one election away from, you know, the extinction of democracy as we know it. Dunn says that's why he's running for Congress. It's 401. Wall Street numbers are coming right up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden returned to South Carolina today, the state that famously helped him with the Democratic nomination in 2020. NPR's Asma Khalid reports this trip comes as Biden tries to boost his support among black voters ahead of his re-election bid. Biden spoke at the historic Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. In 2015, it was the site of a deadly hate crime where a white supremacist murdered nine people. The truth is under assault in America. As a consequence... So is our freedom, our democracy, our very country, because without the truth, there's no light. This trip follows up on a theme of Biden's re-election bid that portrays extreme Republicans as a threat to democracy. The same mob, he says, that tried to steal an election is now trying to erase and steal history by banning books. Support from black voters was key to Biden's victory in 2020, but polling shows it has waned. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Recent polls suggest that more black voters might consider supporting former President Donald Trump this year. Trump's rivals for the GOP nomination are scrambling to overcome the Republicans' overwhelming lead. The first real test comes Monday during Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses. Two of the campaign's clay masters has been following are that of former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. There's a lot at stake for Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. They'll both be barnstorming the state. They'll appear at a CNN debate in Des Moines on Wednesday. Uh, Donald Trump will also be in Iowa that day, but for a separate Fox News town hall. Uh, Trump will also be tied up in courtrooms this week, so that'll keep him out of Iowa, uh, uh, you know, every day. On Tuesday, he'll be in Washington, D.C. for a hearing on whether he was whether he has presidential immunity in the federal election subversion case. And then on Thursday, uh, the judge in Trump's New York civil fraud trial will hear closing arguments. Clay Masters, formerly of Iowa Public Radio. He's now with Minnesota Public Radio. The Federal Aviation Administration has approved procedures for airlines to inspect their grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets. NPR's Joel Rose reports they were removed from service after part of one plane's fuselage blew out during an Alaska Airlines flight. The FAA says airlines can begin inspections of about 170 planes that have been grounded after the incident on Friday night. The panel, known as a door plug, blew off of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft that had just taken off from Portland, Oregon, leaving a gaping hole in the plane. The door plug was later found in a backyard. The door plug is designed to fill an unused space for an extra emergency exit near the back of the aircraft. Investigators are trying to figure out why it became detached from the plane. The FAA says the jets will remain grounded until inspections are complete and any problems they turn up are fixed. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. 
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some belt tightening on Beacon Hill. Governor Maura Healy is announcing spending cuts to cover for a roughly billion-dollar shortfall in tax revenue. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the cuts will affect a number of health and social service programs. The Healy administration proposes cutting $375 million from over 60 programs, including mass health fee-for-service payments and a state supplement to Social Security. State tax collections have fallen short for six months straight, creating a projected billion-dollar funding gap. Massachusetts Administration and Finance Secretary Matthew Gorkowitz says slow growth and falling sales tax collections are affecting revenue. Look, the economy is growing. It's not growing as fast as we anticipated, and it's resulting in us making some mid-year adjustments, which I think are both reasonable and expected. The spending cuts will be implemented in the coming days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. There is an inequitable distribution of working heat lamps at outdoor MBTA stations. An analysis by the Boston Globe says nearly all heat lamps worked on stops that serve Newton and Brookline, but a large number of the non-functioning lamps are on the branch of the Silver Line that cut through Roxbury. The T told the Globe that the agency is working to repair the lamps, but the projects that affect safety come first. Patriots head coach Bill Belichick is not shedding any light on his future. He held a press conference this morning, and all he'd say after that is that that he's still under contract for another year. Today was kind of a wrap-up day for us with the players. Um, we'll have a meeting with them and and uh, and then go from there. So as far as any you know decisions or direction or anything like that for next year is you know way too early for that. Patriots ended their season yesterday with a 17-3 loss to the New York Jets at Foxborough. New England finished the season with a 4-13 and record. A nice day of calm today, sandwiched between two storms. We already had the snowstorm yesterday. A rainstorm comes tomorrow. First, tonight should be clear, down around the mid-20s. Tomorrow, starting up with clouds, highs in the mid-40s. We're due to get 2 to 3 inches of rain tomorrow night into Wednesday. Should be driven by a strong wind, maybe reaching 40 to even 60 miles an hour at times. Rain tomorrow night, we should have the winds picking up, especially after midnight. And then uh, sometime the rain should end about noontime on Wednesday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 33 degrees at 407. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Israel. It's the latest stop in a week-long tour of the Mideast aimed at trying to contain the war in Gaza. This is his fourth trip to Israel since early October when Hamas attacked Israel, killing some 1,200 people. Secretary Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv shortly after an Israeli airstrike killed a senior Hezbollah commander in southern Lebanon. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam is with us from Israel. Hi there. Hi, Ari. So Secretary Blinken has been on this multi-stop tour meeting with Turkish and Arab leaders. Can you give us a better sense of his agenda? He has a full agenda. As you mentioned, one of the things he's trying to do is prevent the war in Gaza from spreading throughout the region, particularly between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah militia. You know, we're seeing increasingly deadly skirmishes and attacks between the two sides along Israel's northern border with Lebanon. But Blinken is also trying to ensure more humanitarian aid gets into Gaza. You know, there are severe shortages of food and water there. 
He's also urging regional players to get involved with shaping Gaza's future once the war is over. And finally, Ari, uh, Blinken is expected to push Israeli leaders to scale back uh, their offensive, this aerial bombardment of Gaza that's now entered into its fourth month. Let's talk more about the situation with Israel and Lebanon, because as we mentioned, a Hezbollah commander was killed in an Israeli airstrike earlier today in Lebanon, less than a week after the assassination of a senior Hamas leader there. Many believe Israel was also behind that. So is there any indication that Israel will listen to what Blinken has to say? Well, Israeli leaders have said they'll deliver a decisive military blow to Hezbollah if it doesn't agree to a deal to pull back its forces from the border. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, he was visiting soldiers along the Lebanon border today, and he said, you know, the military would do everything to restore security in the area. And he added that it would be preferable if that could be done without what he called a wide-ranging campaign, but that it wouldn't stop Israel. Also, the U.S. and Israel appear to have different ideas about Gaza post-war. The White House would like to see some regional buy-in to support Gaza, you know, once the fighting is over. And uh, there are questions about who would be responsible for security and who would govern Gaza and, you know, who would pay for reconstruction once the war is over. The U.S. has been urging Israel to ease off its intensive bombing campaign of Gaza. Around 23,000 people have died there since the war began in October, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Does it look like Israel has started to change its strategy? Well, last week, the Israelis announced they were pulling back some troops from the north and would concentrate their efforts in the south of Gaza. And there's been talk for the past week or so that there is a shift in Israeli strategy, you know, doing more targeted attacks. And this could be in response to repeated American calls, but it's still unclear what this new phase will really look like. The Israelis may be anticipating more difficult conversations with Secretary Blinken. And, you know, as the U.S. and its allies put pressure on Israel to scale down the fighting and allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. So who will Blinken meet with in Israel? He'll have a round of meetings starting Tuesday with political leaders, and that includes Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He'll sit down with the war cabinet, and then he's going to have a one-on-one with Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant. On Wednesday, he's going to go out to the occupied West Bank to meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. And then there's just one last stop after that on this tour, and that's to Cairo to meet Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And Egypt is a critical player and negotiator, uh, you know, throughout this Gaza conflict. St. Pierre's Jackie Northman, Israel. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ari. Tonight, the University of Michigan Wolverines face off against the University of Washington Huskies for the College Football National Championship. If you have been watching, you know the number one ranked Wolverines defense came up with a new way to celebrate turnovers early last season. The player who gets the takeaway wears Cartier sunglasses on the sidelines. Bryce Huffman in Michigan reports on why the celebration has special cultural significance in the Detroit area. During a football game in 2022, former Michigan defensive back R.J. Moten made an interception. Then he headed to the sidelines. There, his teammates handed him a pair of Cartier sunglasses. R.J. Moten with the cool shades on him. Those are the buffs right there. For anyone who has spent time in Detroit, these sunglasses are known as buffs. For Michigan football, the sunglasses are a reward for getting a takeaway on defense. For black and brown Detroiters, though, they are so much more. 
I bought my first pair of busts when I was in the seventh grade. This is Detroiter and rapper Shyvez Smith, better known by his stage name, I Swear Bezo. By the time Smith began rapping in the mid-2000s, he says buffs were already a big deal for people in the city. You immediately know whoever got them glasses on, they crossed some type of milestone in their life to where they, they, they are right. They doing good mentally, financially, however it may be, they, they doing well for themselves. Jewelry and cars have long been seen as status symbols in American culture. But for Detroiters specifically, Smith says buffs are in their own lane. Growing up, when I used to put them buffs on, bro, I felt like Superman, like I transformed, like I'm a whole nother person. Buffs have become synonymous with Detroit rappers and hustlers. They go for about $2,000 on average. Imani Mixon is an arts and culture writer from Detroit. She says high fashion items like buffs have helped people in the city look good and feel good for decades. Visually, it's stunning to see Black people choose to display how they want to be seen through these glasses. But they are expensive, and plenty of people have had their buffs stolen. You also maybe shouldn't wear buffs if you can't defend yourself. <laughs> that goes for any luxury item. Buffs in Detroit's unique rap style didn't get popular outside the Motor City until the past few years. Jennifer Owenu hosts the YouTube show Ask Jen. The social media influencer often starts dialogue within the city's Black community. Owenu says at first she didn't like seeing non-Detroiters rock the city's style. Because I felt like people really didn't know what was going on. Now that the University of Michigan Wolverine started the turnover buffs trend, Owenu has softened her stance. I feel like enough time has gone past that the connection between the buffs and how they celebrate and how they operate is very authentic to Detroit. After all, the Wolverines play just 45 minutes from Detroit. And now buffs are a cultural staple with multiple generations. Put the buffs on my jacket, K. Cunningham. Put the buffs on my jacket, K. Cunningham. Put the buffs on my jacket, K. Cunningham. Local rapper James Johnson, or Babytron, is just 23 years old. But even he wears buffs and raps about them. Johnson says it wasn't enough for him to simply wear a pair that someone gave him. You know, I had to earn a pair. I wanted to make money. It was only like, what, $2,000? So I just wanted to make $2,000 and get some buffs. When he was 17, he bought his first pair. I'm like 10 pairs in now, though. Although he won't be at this year's national championship game, Johnson is happy that his favorite college team is embracing a piece of Detroit culture. For NPR News, I'm Bryce Huffman in Detroit. Early this morning, NASA launched America's first robotic mission to the moon's surface since the Apollo era. Five, four, three, we have ignition and liftoff. But a few hours after launch, the mission appeared to be in trouble. NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield is here to talk about what happened. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Ari. First, what's the latest word on how the mission's going? Yeah, it doesn't appear to be going well, unfortunately. This was a small probe called Peregrine 1 from a company called Astrobotic out of Pittsburgh. It launched just after 2 a.m. local time from Florida. The spacecraft went up, its power turned on, it made contact with Earth, everything looked good. Sometime after that, though, something went wrong with the propulsion system. It's not quite clear what it was, but the spacecraft has been losing propellant, according to updates from the company. It's also struggled with power issues, so those might be fixed for the moment. Anyway, power and fuel are the two things you need to fly in space, so this looks like a pretty big problem. Oh, well, what was Peregrine 1 supposed to have been doing? 
Well, I mean, had it worked, this would have been the first American spacecraft to make a soft landing on the moon since the Apollo missions. Um, it was carrying several small NASA experiments and instruments, as well as payloads from the Mexican Space Agency and some private companies. Now, the bigger picture here is NASA wants to send astronauts back to the moon, but it's trying to do it as cheaply as possible. Part of that is subcontracting the smaller jobs to the private sector. Astrobotic is one of several companies that might one day be used by NASA to send supplies and equipment to its astronauts. So basically, think of this as like a trial of lunar FedEx. Only something. less reliable, it sounds like. And <laughs> this is not the only mission to the moon that's gone poorly lately. Why is it so hard to do something that the U.S. first did decades ago? Yeah, that's right. A Russian mission crashed on the moon last year. So did a commercial mission from Japan. You know, before all this happened, I spoke to John Thornton, the CEO of Astrobotic, and he told me, when you're dealing with a satellite, that just goes around the Earth. If something goes wrong, you can fix it the next time it goes by. But a lunar mission has to travel from Earth to the moon and then land. These kinds of missions are constantly adjusting and have far less room for error. Going down to the surface of the moon, you have minutes or seconds, which is not really a practical time window to, to solve anything. So it, it's a it's got to work. And this mission did not work. So what does that say more broadly about NASA's plan to rely on commercial companies to get it to the moon? Is that strategy going to get it into trouble? You know, this isn't the only mission. In fact, this was a relatively small mission. You might even call it one small step. Um, there's other ones coming from a company called Intuitive Machines next month and more. But you're right. The bottom line is uh, the commercial strategy strategy is cheap, but it carries more risk. And, you know, that could make NASA's lunar ambitions uh, very uh, difficult, especially on a tight budget. We'll just have to see. One small step, one small stumble, perhaps. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here on this Monday afternoon at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the part of the plane that blew out of a Boeing 737 flight Friday has been found in a backyard in Oregon. Investigators are trying to understand why a door plug system that's worked so well on other planes failed on this one. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU Center for Professional Education Certificates in Real Estate Studies. Stay current and competitive in commercial real estate facilities management and real estate finance. Learn more at an information webinar Tuesday, January 9th at 2 p.m. Sign up at bu.edu professional. A Monday upswing on Wall Street. The Dow picked up about six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained almost one-and-a-half percent, and the Nasdaq grew by two-and-two-tenths percent. Gas prices in Massachusetts are dropping. AAA Northeast says the average statewide is down three cents from last week to $3.17 a gallon. That's 17 cents lower than a month ago, but still 10 cents higher than the national average. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo where curiosity fuels discovery. Explo is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. 
For more information, visit explo.org slash summer. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Overnight tonight, clear skies, temperatures about 25 degrees, clouds for tomorrow in the mid-40s, and then rain, lots of high winds tomorrow night through about noontime on Wednesday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Three and a half days. That is how long it took the Pentagon to inform the White House that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had been hospitalized on New Year's Day. Austin, who was admitted following complications from an elective procedure, apologized over the weekend, saying, quote, I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. Well, I want to bring in someone with firsthand knowledge of the challenges and the protocols of the role. Leon Panetta served as President Obama's Secretary of Defense. Secretary Panetta, welcome. Good to speak with you again. Good to be with you, Mary Louise. How big a deal is this? Well, uh, it uh, it certainly raises concerns because uh, it relates to something that is extremely important. Uh, which is the uh, chain of command uh, that deals with our national security. And obviously, the Secretary of Defense uh, is a critical part of that chain of command in dealing with defense issues and nuclear issues and other areas related to our national security. So uh, when the Secretary uh, is, uh, for any reason, uh, incapacitated, uh, that that raises a lot of concerns about uh, who should be in touch and who should be in control of the issues that he normally deals with. I mean, can you think of anything like this happening in past? Is there precedent for a cabinet secretary to check into the hospital for days, including being admitted to intensive care, and not tell the White House or Congress or the Pentagon press corps or apparently most of his colleagues at the Pentagon? Yeah, it's a look. Uh, I, there's no question that uh, Lloyd Austin has done a great job as Secretary of Defense at a critical time. A lot of tough issues to deal with, and I'm sure he's been on the road a lot dealing with our allies. Uh, having said that, there's also no question that a serious mistake was made here, uh, particularly and not just in not informing the public, but in particular not informing the president uh, or the national security team. Uh, for a number of days. I think uh, he was in the hospital on New Year's uh, Day uh, and did not uh, inform the president or the national security advisor until Thursday. Uh, That uh, that raises uh, serious concerns. Now, he's acknowledged the the problem, taken full responsibility for it. 
uh, which is something new in Washington to have somebody uh, actually <laughs> take responsibility for screwing up. But, but uh, how does, so, for, so forgive I my jumping in, yeah, but how's it, how's, right it, how's it normally work? I mean, when you were defense secretary, if you had needed to go to the hospital for whatever reason, what's the checklist? Well, uh, the first call that would be made normally is to the chief of staff, to the president, uh, to inform him that, uh, you know, for some reason, uh, the secretary, I, the secretary would be incapacitated uh, and that uh, my deputy uh, would be uh, responsible for uh, running the uh, uh, Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, you know, I can remember as a former chief of staff to the president that uh, we had a rule in the Clinton administration that uh, uh, any uh, cabinet member who was going to be incapacitated uh, was to inform the White House uh, as quickly as possible so that we were aware of it. Okay. I tweeted this morning about the situation, and I had a lot of people writing me back, pushing back, saying, look, the defense secretary has a right to privacy like anyone else. This was an elective medical procedure. It's none of our business. Secretary Panetta, is that true, or is the standard different for a defense secretary? Well, when you're when you're Secretary of Defense, uh, yes, you do you do have your privacy, and uh, and I, I certainly respect uh, Lloyd Austin because he is a private person, but at the same time, he is a public person, uh, being Secretary of Defense, uh, and carries responsibilities that are critical to our country, and for that reason, uh, you do have a responsibility. Uh, to inform certainly the president uh, and the national security team uh, when in any way you're going to be incapacitated. Uh, and that's that's the greatest failing here. Uh, you know, I, I understand the public, uh, you know, may, may very well want to protect his privacy in some way. But when it comes to the president and the national security team, they are responsible for protecting our country. Uh, and should be informed if anything is happening to the Secretary of Defense. That That's a requirement related to our national security. What are your questions at this point about the situation? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, right now uh, the reasons for his being hospitalized uh, have not been made public. Uh, but ultimately, the truth comes out. Uh, my experience in Washington tells me that in the end, the truth will come out. And it's probably better to come from him. I mean, the reality he, is that he was in intensive care. Uh, he had to take an ambulance in order to go to Walter Reed. Uh, he was hospitalized, continues to be hospitalized. So there's obviously something that is wrong here. And ultimately, I think the public needs to know, uh, once he leaves the hospital, that uh, his physical condition is one that uh, will not interfere with his duties as Secretary of Defense. No. You're getting at something that's been on my mind, which is what to make of the fact that we still don't know what is or was wrong with him. And this after he apologized and promised better transparency. Yeah, and I and as I said, I, I think that uh, while he has taken responsibility, I think he does understand that he should have done a better job in informing not just the public, but obviously 
his superiors, the president, national security team, mm -hmm. etc., uh, that ultimately, in order to really be able to get past uh, this situation, I think he's going to have to say uh, what the problem was and the fact that he is well healed uh, and can assume his responsibilities again. I think I think uh, the country needs to know that the Secretary of Defense is not going to be incapacitated again. Um, does it raise questions for you that his deputy, who was on vacation in Puerto Rico, was told she would have to temporarily take over, but she was not told why? Yeah, that's a concern. I, I you know, I, I think... <laughs> I think if uh, the deputy is suddenly alerted that she's going to take over the responsibilities, I, I'm assuming that she assumed that uh, it involved him trying to take some time uh, from the job, uh, and that that's understandable. But whatever the reason is, uh, I think the deputy ought to know the reasons, because the deputy now is going to be uh, assuming some very important responsibilities, particularly now. You know, we're dealing with a war in Ukraine. We're dealing with a war in Israel. We're dealing with terrorist threats uh, uh, all over the Middle East. Uh, mm. It is really important that uh, the secretary has to be on top of that. Right. And, the, and the deputy has to be on top of that as well. That is former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. Secretary Panetta, great to speak with you. Thank you. Good to be with you. And we wish Secretary Austin a full and speedy recovery. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Tennessee lawmakers would consider expanding the state's power to involuntarily commit someone with severe mental illness. Advocates worry the measure would undermine the rights of those people who are the most vulnerable. That story and much more still ahead. In the forecast overnight tonight should be clear with temperatures in the mid-20s. Then for tomorrow, overcast skies. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Then things get interesting after sunset tomorrow. A drenching rain throughout the region along with a powerful wind. Wednesday, the rain should keep coming in the morning with wind continuing through the afternoon Wednesday. Temperatures could make it all the way to the mid-50s Wednesday. And that means a lot of melting going on, especially combined with the rainfall from tomorrow night. So look out for flooding in low-lying areas and places where the snow is covering up storm drains. The calm and bright weather should return on Thursday. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. Every now and then, we bring the party. It's a new year, and our friends at NPR Music are ready to jam. They share some of their most anticipated albums of 2024. This is one of those songs that's like immediately, oh, hell yeah. From funk to reggae to rock, we bring you a sneak peek tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is back in Israel after a flurry of meetings with Middle East leaders from Jordan, the UAE, Greece, and Turkey. Biden told reporters he feels confident the leaders are committed to ensuring the conflict between Israel and Hamas doesn't spread and a two-state solution could be achieved. It's clearly not in the interest of anyone. Israel, Lebanon... Hezbollah, for that matter, uh, to, see this, uh, to see this escalate and to see an actual conflict. 
And the Israelis have been very clear with us that they want to find a diplomatic way forward. Today, a senior commander of the militant group Hezbollah was killed in an Israeli airstrike in southern Lebanon, raising concerns of a wider Mideast war. As fighting raged near the main hospital in central Gaza, Israel says it has largely concluded major operations in northern Gaza and is now focusing primarily on the central region. House Republicans have issued a report to hold President Biden's son Hunter in contempt. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports the move comes after House Republicans and Biden failed to come to an agreement. The chairman of the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees issued the report as part of an effort to hold Hunter Biden in contempt for failing to appear under a subpoena. Hunter Biden, who is facing several criminal tax and gun charges, said he would only testify publicly, but Republicans refused. Now, the House Oversight and Judiciary panels will vote on the resolution on Wednesday to hold Hunter Biden in contempt. If the Republican-led panels approve the move as expected, it will send the matter to the full House for a vote to trigger the criminal charge. Claudia Grisales, NBR News. And stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Employers in Massachusetts say they feel good about how their businesses will fare in the first half of this year. The Associated Industries of Massachusetts released its latest business confidence index today. WBUR's Ninjor Anwameka has more. The report measures how employers feel about their company's prospects and the direction of the state and national economies. The so-called Future Index increased more than two and a half points in December compared to the previous month. Christopher Guerin is with Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Employers are feeling pretty good about the first six months of 2024. You never know how things are going to play out. But right now, I think employers are in a pretty good place about uh, certainly the first half of this year. Guerin says expected interest rate cuts helped boost business confidence. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. A group of Maine lobster fishermen has filed suit over new requirements to use 24-hour electronic monitoring devices on their boats. They say in the federal suit that minute-by-minute surveillance of the federally licensed boats is not constitutional. The Maine Department of Marine Resources says that the data helped them uh, collect information that can be used to study endangered North Atlantic right whales. No date for a hearing has been set yet. A second storm is making its way toward Massachusetts, and this one should bring a deluge of rain. Here's WBR's meteorologist Daniel Noyes with the latest. Still cleaning up from yesterday's storm and spots as our next one moves in tomorrow. A mainly rain and wind event starts as a brief burst of snow along and outside of 495 tomorrow evening before changing over, according to two inches of snow possible before the flip to rain there. Heavy rain tomorrow night into pre-dawn Wednesday, one to two inches. Localized flooding, isolated thunder. The heaviest rain is over 4 to 6 a.m. Wednesday, with just a few rain showers after that. The wind will be a big story. Many gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour. 50 to 60 miles per hour at the coast of Cape Cod, scattered outages and damage, highs in the 50s, fall into the 40s Wednesday afternoon. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AAF CPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. 
Celtics and Bruins are both on the road tonight. Celtics are still in Indiana for another game against the Pacers. The Bruins take to the ice in Colorado against the Avalanche. 33 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investing in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Three years ago, Harry Dunn was an officer defending the Capitol from violent insurrectionists. As he later told the House January 6th committee, the riot and the racist attacks he endured left him in shock. I became very emotional and began yelling, how the blank could something like this happen? Is this America? I began sobbing. Officers came over to console me. Now, the former U.S. Capitol police officer has announced he wants to return to the Capitol as a congressman. He is running as a Democrat for a seat in his home state of Maryland. And Harry Dunn is with us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hey, thanks for having me on. You made this announcement of your campaign close to the third anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, and I imagine that was deliberate. What does that day represent to you now? If January 6th didn't happen, maybe you and I aren't having this conversation right now. However, it did. And um, I've never been a stranger to public service. I've I've been a public servant the last 15 plus years of my life. You know, maybe I would have considered Congress after the end of my full career, a full, you know, 25 year plus career. But January 6th did happen. And uh, it springboarded me to this moment right now. What was it about January 6th that made you say, you know what, maybe I would have run for office a decade from now, but I have to do it today? Yeah, because like, I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that we're one election away from, you know, the extinction of democracy as we know it. I don't have the luxury of waiting to see if I can retire and then maybe consider running for Congress. There's a clear and present threat right now to our democracy. And uh, I believe it's worth fighting for. You say you're running to defend democracy. The recently elected House Speaker Mike Johnson said just yesterday on CBS's Face the Nation that the 2020 election violated the Constitution. So how can a single congressman in a body run by many Republicans who still discredit or fought to overturn the election do that job of defending democracy? What I've been doing since January 6th, I've been doing as a public citizen, just somebody who is refusing to be quiet and letting people in the body of Congress perpetuate the lies and whitewashing and downplaying what happened that day. And I've been doing that just as an American citizen. But now as a congressman, I believe that gives me a seat at the table with um, a little more uh, credibility, so to speak. And I can't be dismissed as just some angry you know, American partisan guy. I will actually be their colleague, their equal, and um, they'll have to face me. And through legislation, through debates, I will have a seat at that table. And that's what I'm looking forward to having. You're clearly passionate about this issue. What would you say to people who would describe you as a one-issue candidate? Is that accurate? That's far from accurate. Uh, I align with a lot of the Democratic principles and values that the Democratic Party talks about. Common sense gun reform, the woman's right to choose, voting rights. I I agree with all of those issues, and I'm very passionate about that. 
However, I think that those issues fall under the umbrella of democracy. And if democracy falls, then I think those issues kind of go out the window because, you know, President Trump in his own words has said he wants to be a dictator for a day. So in that day, does that day turn into a week, a year, four years, the rest of his life? And then what does he do with that power that he will ultimately have? Now, you're running in what is considered a safe Democratic district in a crowded primary field with the retiring incumbent. Many of the candidates who are running against you in the primary are Maryland state senators or delegates who already have legislative experience. Why do you think voters should choose you over somebody who has already worked in this space? I can completely appreciate all the work that those candidates have done. And, you know, we're all on the same side. We all want to preserve democracy. However, it will be a learning curve for them, too. None of them have been representatives in the United States House of Representatives. I also have been a public servant the last 15 plus years of my life. So I'm not a career politician. I'm a career public servant. And I think that's what it takes. My job is to listen to the people and to give them a voice on the floors of Congress in the halls of Congress. That is my job. And I think that my experience as a law enforcement officer has given me the ability to be able to do that effectively. Former U.S. Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, now running as a Democrat to represent Maryland in Congress. Thank you for your time. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you. The FAA says airlines can now start inspecting their grounded Boeing planes to get them back in the air. About 170 planes were removed from service after part of the fuselage on a Boeing 737 MAX 9 blew out on Friday night. Today, United Airlines says it has found additional planes with loose bolts and possible installation issues in the same part of the plane. NPR's Joel Rose covers transportation. He is here now. Hi, Joel. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, so what is the latest? Start with the grounded Boeing jets. What's going on? Yeah, United Airlines and Alaska Airlines are the two major U.S. carriers that fly these Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets that have this particular component that failed on Friday night. It's called a door plug. Uh, This is the component that blew off of an Alaska Airlines plane that had just taken off from Portland, Oregon. Passengers and crew describe hearing a loud bang as this panel tore loose from the plane at 16,000 feet. The depressurization was violent enough to damage seats in the vicinity. Fortunately, the seats right next to the panel were empty, but cell phones and some other loose items were just sucked right out of the hole before the plane turned back to Portland and landed safely. This afternoon, United said it has already begun preliminary inspections of its grounded jets. United said in a statement that it's found loose bolts that needed tightening and other, quote, installation issues, unquote, with the door plug. Gosh. Okay. And can I stop you there? Because I'm not sure I understand what a door plug is. You said it's a panel? Yeah, it's not really a door at all. It is a panel that is designed to fill a hole in the fuselage. And the hole is there so that Boeing can add an extra emergency exit to the plane as needed. Safety regulators require additional exits if the plane is carrying more than about 200 passengers. And if they're carrying less, airlines can get the plane with this door plug instead. Boeing has been using door plugs in some of its 737 planes for over a decade without any major safety incidents. Now, the good news, according to safety experts, is that investigators have recovered this particular door plug, which landed in the backyard of a school teacher outside of Portland. Oh, okay. So they have the door plug. What are they hoping to learn from it? Well, investigators are going to be focused on the condition of the door plug itself and the area where it attaches to the plane. Also, the four bolts that connect the plug to the plane. I want to play you a cut from John Cox. He's a former pilot and now a safety consultant, and he spoke to NPR's Morning Edition earlier today. 
we're very fortunate. They have found the plug itself. So they'll have both sides to be able to look at to see if there's marks from where the two pieces of metal moved against each other. All of those things they're going to look at to try to understand the forces that resulted in this plug leaving the airplane. That is the investigation latest. But Joel, what has been the impact on air travel of all this? Well, both Alaska and United have canceled hundreds of flights today, more than any other airlines. Federal regulators say that those airlines can now officially begin inspecting their grounded planes. The inspections are expected to take about four to eight hours per plane, according to the FAA. So, you know, we could start to see some of those planes come back online fairly soon after, of course, any problems like loose bolts are repaired. The damage to Boeing's reputation is going to take a lot longer to repair, uh, both with the flying public and with the airlines, who invest a huge amount of money in these planes, want them safely in the air as much as possible. And Pierre's Joel Rose. He covers transportation. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tennessee lawmakers are proposing expanding the state's power to involuntarily commit people with severe mental illnesses. The push comes after the fatal shooting in Nashville of a college student last year. The suspect is a person police say had a mental health disorder. And other states are passing similar laws. Mariana Bacchiao from member station WPLN reports advocates worry the effort would undermine the civil rights of the most vulnerable. Deborah Woodard's son has autism and schizophrenia. He's been in and out of jail in the hospital for years. When he gets put in the jail, I have to always bring my conservatorship papers, even though they don't listen to that. She says police officers and jail staff don't often know about his condition when booking him. He shut down and wouldn't communicate with them. And they tased him and the police officer charged at him. I saw it all on the tape. I said, I don't believe this. Woodard's son and people with similar conditions could be held in state custody for longer under a proposal in the Tennessee State House. The measure would automatically commit people after they're judged incompetent to stand trial. That comes after the fatal shooting of a Nashville college freshman last year. A judge ruled the alleged shooter was incompetent to stand trial for a separate gun-related charge a few months prior. Zoe Jamail with Disability Rights Tennessee worries expanding the reach of these laws could lead to the mass institutionalization of a certain group. We don't believe that someone just based on a disability should be institutionalized. That's how we used to treat people with disabilities. Um, and we've come a really long way moving away from that. States have been grappling with when and for how long to commit people with certain severe conditions. Jeffrey Swanson is a professor of psychiatry at Duke University. He says some states are pushing people with mental illnesses into state care because there isn't enough funding for programs that keep them in their communities. There are variations on those laws. It's, they're quite controversial, but they tended to be enacted, you know, after some kind of a violent event involving a person with mental illness. So you have Kendra's law in New York, Laura's law in California and Kevin's law in Michigan. And th those tend to be passed because, you know, the general public don't care so much about individuals with mental illness who need care, but they do care about public safety. Advocates say institutionalizing more people means the state will need to pay for more support staff and bed space in state hospitals and jails, where many people with mental illnesses end up. Kevin Henderson is the deputy chief of Rutherford County Jail. 
He says his facility could use more funding. Well, I would, I would hope to have a clinician, uh, a psychologist. He says a staff of nurses and a psych unit would also help. More than half of the people in Rutherford County Jail have been diagnosed with some sort of mental illness, according to Henderson. He says his staff isn't equipped to handle their needs. But the issue is, once they are released, we have nobody to hand them off to, and they go right back out into that same environment that brought them here in the first place. So it's just a revolving door for them. As for a long-term solution? I mean, being locked up in a jail is not the place for them. Woodard agrees. Her son has gone back and forth between the jail and the hospital since he aged out of a group home for teenagers. They just think, oh, you're just crazy, and that's it. You know, they don't understand the different levels of the mental illness, and you need support. People need support. They need people to, to lean on and talk about their problems. Her son is currently in a state hospital, and she doesn't know where he'll go from here. They'll just have to wait and see what the courts decide and what the legislature does. For NPR News in Nashville, I'm Mariana Bakayao. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes. How Taiwanese identity has evolved on the island in recent generations. We'll speak to several generations there. Tomorrow night, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Last year, she laid out goals for increasing Boston's population and controlling its soaring housing costs. Listen live at 7 o'clock tomorrow here at 90.9 WBUR as she lays out her vision for the year ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. Experience the region's seasons, landscapes, traditions, and innovations in the giant screen production, The Heart of New England, mos.org. Should have a clear night tonight. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, gray skies to start. Highs in the mid-40s. And then, after sunset tomorrow, drenching rain throughout the region. A powerful wind. On Wednesday, we should have some rain through the morning hours until about noontime. Wind continuing into the afternoon. Temperatures could make their way all the way to the mid-50s on Wednesday. So should have a lot of melting of snow going on. 31 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Scott Tong. Kids are skipping school more than they did pre-pandemic. Absenteeism has doubled by some measures, and some school districts are using old-school truant officers to find kids playing hooky. Is it working? Pay attention, class, next time here and now. Listening in tomorrow at noon, a 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A musical set to songs by the Avett Brothers received rave reviews when it premiered at Berkeley Repertory Theater in early 2022. Now, 
Swept Away is doing the same at Arena Stage here in D.C. It's inspired by the true story of a shipwreck in the late 1800s. Desperate, starving seamen adrift in the ocean resort to cannibalism to survive. Now, that might not sound like the most appealing setting for a musical, but as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, Swept Away is also about family, truth, and forgiveness. Long before there was even an idea for a musical, Swept Away was a song on the Avett Brothers' 2004 album, Mignonette. And who cares about tomorrow? What more is tomorrow than another day? When you swept me away. The Mignonette is the name of a ship that sank off the coast of Africa in 1884. The story of the three crew members who survived is harrowing. Dying of starvation, they agreed to sacrifice a fourth crew member in order to survive. When they were finally rescued, they told the truth about what they'd done. Scott Avid read a book about the Mignonette. He says ultimately it was a story about truth. Because at the end, the truth was, although the truth was the right thing, it was going to be a cause of suffering. More than a decade after the album came out, Avid says they got a call proposing to turn it into a musical. It made perfect sense because I visualized these things as whole, whole stories. John Logan, whose credits include the movies Skyfall and Gladiator and the Broadway shows Red and Moulin Rouge, was brought in to craft the story out of the Avett Brothers songs. Logan says he knew their music, but now poured over their entire catalog. And I was just struck by the poetry of their lyrics, by the intensity of the music. And walk through the night, straight to the light, holding the love I've known in my life. And no hard feelings. And by the way they could explore different characters through songs. And that's what musicals do. It helps that the characters the Avett brothers have written about include the pious and the profane. At one point in Swept Away, the most religious character on the ship kneels to pray, singing the only song the Avetts wrote specifically for the show. Lord, lay your hand on my shoulder and guide me to our The most heathenistic character laughs at the man's devotion and breaks into one of the Avett's most popular songs. There ain't no man can save me, ain't no man can enslave me, ain't no man a man that can change the shape my soul is in. There ain't nobody here who can cause me pain or raise my fear cause I got only love to share. Played by Tony winner John Gallagher Jr., the mate, as he's called, is the one who ultimately suggests they kill a crew member in order to survive. John Logan has him sing, Satan Pulls the Strings. When the winter yields the summertime, the whippoorwill she sings. My heart is in the puppet box and Satan pulls the strings. Satan pulls the strings, mama, Satan pulls the strings. That's one of the things that made the Avis catalog so incredible for this kind of tale of, of mortality and morality. This like wrestling with darkness and light 
and faith and what is my meaning. Adrian Blake Ensco plays Little Brother in Swept Away. Big Brother is played by Stark Sands. Little Brother is a dreamer, eager for adventure. Big Brother is more of a homebody and deeply religious. When they first get on the ship, they're arguing, but it's obvious they care about each other. In the song Murder in the City, they instruct each other what to do if one of them gets killed. If I get murdered in the city, don't go revenging in my name. One person dead from such is plenty. No need to go get locked away. Scott Avitt says this was always a very personal song about him and his brother and bandmate Seth. I didn't think it was relatable. I think when the song was happening or when the song was written, I thought that it was all mine and that it was all ours, all Seth. And I like this is Seth and I's experience. You know, this is our experience. And that's just not true. It's, it's, it is, but it is many other, like it's everybody's experience, especially with siblings. Wonder which brother is better. Which one our parents love the most? I sure did get in lots of trouble. He seemed to let the other go. Scott Avid remembers when he saw Swept Away for the first time. I thought these these guys can really sing a lot better than me. <laughs> I was like, they have a lot more control with their voices than, than I'll ever have. And I think it's beautiful. So how is a musical about brotherhood, a 19th century shipwreck, and cannibalism relevant to today? Swept Away wrestles with what it means to tell the truth and to forgive. Stark Sands, who plays Big Brother, believes these are themes that continue to plague humanity. I think that right now we're living at a time when there are some people who don't want to face the past. They don't want to acknowledge the sort of awful things that we have done as a race, as a nation. And um, I know that's sort of atmospheric, big picture stuff, but it, it's there. And this man that we are following in the story, the mate, he's done some horrible things that he admits to over the course of the play. And all we're asking him to do is just say them out loud. For John Logan, Swept Away is about having empathy. Empathy means empathy to those who have sinned. It means empathy to those who are degrading and awful people, but it means empathy to all. You know, there's, there's the quote that is above my computer, nothing that is human is alien to me. And so when I look at the actions of the mate in this story, I say, he's a human being just like I am. And I'm capable of the same exaltation, the same joy, the same degradation, and the same violence, because nothing that is human is alien to me. The cast and crew of Swept Away are hoping for a turn on Broadway in the future. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Make sure my sister knows I loved her. Make sure my mother knows the same. Always remember there was nothing worth sharing like the love that let us share our name. Make sure my sister knows I loved her. Make sure my mother knows the same Always remember there was nothing worth sharing Like the love that let us share our name Always remember there was nothing worth sharing Like the love You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Auto Insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward. 
including protection while running errands and other tasks, at progressivecommercial.com. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases, in a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary II, with a commitment to white star service, fine dining, and entertainment, cunard.com crossing. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Today was a nice day of calm that's sandwiched between two storms. Already had the snow yesterday. Tomorrow it's going to be rain. First, tonight should be clear, down around the mid-20s. Tomorrow should start up cloudy with temperatures reaching the mid-40s. Then we're due to get two to three inches of rain tomorrow night into Wednesday, ending around noontime on Wednesday. Could make it all the way up to the mid-50s midweek, meaning more melting and a greater chance of flooding after all the rain. It is 31 degrees now in Boston. Celtics try for a second straight win against the Pacers in Indiana tonight. Tip-off is at 7 o'clock. And the Bruins are out in Colorado to face the Avalanche. 9.05 start time. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Congressional leaders have agreed to a spending framework to fund the government through September. That's the good news. But Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson's decision to back a plan supported by Democrats could spell bad news for him. Our story is coming up on this Monday, January 8th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, what it means to be Taiwanese varies from one generation to the next. Most residents of Taiwan can trace their roots to mainland China, yet a majority of them now identify only as Taiwanese. We have our president. We have our own constitution. Pay our own taxes to our government. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley recently failed to identify slavery as a cause of the Civil War. Later, she said that was a mistake. I was thinking past slavery and talking about the lesson that we would learn going forward. How that contrasts with her previous statements coming up. It's 5.01. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Thank you. President Joe Biden journeyed to South Carolina today, part of the Democrats' plan to move the focus past Iowa. While Republicans have been crisscrossing Iowa, Democratic results will not be available till mid-March. Biden traveled to a black church in South Carolina today, where a vowed white supremacist Dylan Roof killed nine parishioners in 2015. Biden saying such racist violence needs to end. White supremacy. Oh, it is. It's a poison throughout our history. It's ripped this nation apart. It says no place in America. Not today, tomorrow, or ever. Biden also continued his attacks on former President Donald Trump, referring to the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in 2021. Biden calling Trump a threat to democracy, who failed to concede his election loss. Biden's remarks were briefly interrupted by protesters against Israel's war in Gaza. The White House is standing by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. It comes as some Republicans calling him to be fired following a secretive emergency hospitalization. 
More from NPR's Ash Mahalik. The White House says President Biden has, quote, complete confidence in the secretary. Here's how the administration's national security spokesman, John Kirby, put it. There is no chance for anything other than for Secretary Austin to stay in the job and continuing the leadership that he's been demonstrating. Kirby added that the administration intends to review its processes and procedures to see if they need to change anything after this experience raised questions about the lack of transparency. The White House also clarified it intends to be transparent regarding the president's health, as it has in the past, if anything were to happen concerning Biden. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel, part of a week-long swing through the Mideast region. As NPR's Jackie Northam explains, the visit is aimed at containing the war in Gaza. This is Secretary Blinken's fourth trip to the region since early October, when Hamas attacked Israel, killing some 1,200 people. Blinken touched down in Tel Aviv shortly after an Israeli airstrike killed a senior Hezbollah commander in southern Lebanon. Blinken will meet with Israeli politicians, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. Blinken is expected to push for more humanitarian aid into Gaza, discuss a post-war future for the enclave, and urge Israel to curtail its aerial bombardment that has left more than 22,000 people dead in Gaza. Last week, the Israelis announced they were pulling back troops from the north of Gaza and concentrating their efforts in the south of the enclave. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Southern Israel. After largely drifting with the start of the new year, investors appear to be a bit more optimistic heading into the new trading week. The Dow was up 216 points today. The Nasdaq rose 319 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healy's administration is planning $375 million in budget cuts. This is after six months of tax revenue shortfalls this fiscal year. The largest cut affects the state-run health insurer MassHealth. No details available on that as yet. Evan Horowitz is the executive director of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts University. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston that revenue shortfalls follow years of budget surpluses. For a couple of years, we didn't have to make any priority choices. There was so much money that whenever two people got in a room and said, I want to do this, I want to do A, and somebody else said, I want to do B, you could just say, okay, let's do both. And now we're in a situation where we really can't do that. We're going to have to make priority decisions. The Healy administration will file the budget cuts on Beacon Hill, although no approval by lawmakers is required. The State Department of Public Health is initiating a review of anti-abortion centers in the state. The agency says it's received complaints about the facilities, also dubbed crisis pregnancy centers. There are about 30 of these in Massachusetts, and four of them are subject to state licensure. The state says most of them are religiously affiliated and do not provide abortions or referrals. The Department of Public Health is seeking complaints from people who've had concerning experiences with anti-abortion centers. DPW crews in Worcester are still cleaning up after the weekend snowstorm. Central Mass was among the hardest hit areas. Worcester got more than a foot of snow. Some areas got more than 15 inches. Public Works Commissioner Jay Fink says the city plows and trucks have been working to clear side streets and fallen tree limbs. So we've been completing that today. We've also gone back, widened roadways uh, where uh, some of the turning lanes, uh, some parking lanes, things like that are encroaching on the travel way uh, that really needs to be cleaned up so, you know, people can get around the city. 
Worcester Public Schools were closed today. Schools and city services are set to resume normal hours tomorrow. Should be nice and dry tonight on the chilly side. Temperatures in the mid-20s and then tomorrow, cloudy skies after sunset. Should have a soaking rain that should last through the night. Really gusty winds as well, continuing until about noontime on Wednesday. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang in Taipei, Taiwan, where I often visited as a kid because this is where my family is from, going back centuries. But, you know... All through my life, I never really thought of myself as Taiwanese, even though I grew up speaking Taiwanese. My parents always just said, you are Chinese, just like, well, someone such as Emily Fang is. Hi, Elsa. NPR's Emily Fang covers China and Taiwan from her base here in Taipei. But to be clear, my parents emigrated to the U.S. from China. That's right. And yet, Emily, a lot of people would clump you and me together as Chinese. Yes. And identity is a hugely sensitive issue for this island of 23 million people. Because even though more than 90% of people living in Taiwan can trace their roots to mainland China, the majority of them now identify in polls as Taiwanese only. And that's a huge shift from just 30 years ago. Exactly. And part of the reason that we're here is because there's a really consequential presidential election this week. And for many voters, at the heart of this election is the question, what does it mean to be Taiwanese? Nice to meet you. Finally. Elsa, so nice to meet you. So to better understand how Taiwanese identity has evolved on this island through the generations, Emily and I spent some time with a father, a mother, and a daughter. Steven. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice nice to meet you. First up, the dad. His Chinese name is Chen Yaoran. He's 67. It's so funny. Emily's translating the Mandarin and I'm translating the Taiwanese. <laughs> I don't understand the Taiwanese. And I don't understand so much of the Mandarin. <laughs> Chen's daughter, Shi Ying, was also there with us. But she didn't want to be interviewed alongside her dad because she knew they'd get into a fight over politics. We all met up at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial, which sits at the top of 89 steps, each step representing a year of John's life. Okay, I'm out of breath. (laughs) He's not. Yeah, he's not out of breath. In China, Chiang Kai-shek led the Nationalist Party, which lost a civil war to the Chinese Communist Party. He then fled to Taiwan in 1949 and imposed martial law on this island, which lasted until the late 1980s. Chiang Kai-shek is a controversial figure here, but Chun and many people of his generation still revere him. He wants to thank Chiang Kai-shek because without him, China would have been invaded and Taiwan wouldn't exist the way it does today. Now, Chun's family has been on this island for centuries. He grew up under martial law alongside families who had just fled from China. And the new government here taught him to think of communist China as the enemy. So growing up, you really felt there was a difference between Taiwanese people like you and mainlanders that were here also in Taiwan? No. Really? They seem just as Taiwanese as you, the mainlanders? My ancestors came from mainland China. 
And so, even though Chun says he's proud to be from Taiwan, he has always thought of himself as a Chinese person. People of my generation will mostly think that they are Chinese. And he doesn't believe that the generation after him will think that they are Chinese. Babies born today in Taiwan, they're born and raised in Taiwan. They're going to think that they're Taiwanese. Chun recognizes that his Chinese identity largely came out of the way that he was educated in the 1960s, when the island's public school curriculum taught only Chinese history. It wasn't until the 2000s that the schools replaced much of that curriculum with the history of Taiwan. And Chun says that is why so many younger people in Taiwan today identify as exclusively Taiwanese. This Taiwanese identity is deliberately created. It's been done through education. Oh, interesting. You see it as a construct. The concept changes depending on your political perspective and depending on the administration in power. And if another administration comes in, he thinks the concept will change again. Ah. How have you felt about the current president of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, and the way she handles the relationship between Taiwan and Beijing? Terrible. If you think about it, Tsai Ing-wen herself is Chinese. The real Taiwanese people are indigenous people. Everyone else came here after. They're Chinese. And so there doesn't have to be this kind of military tension in the region, and everyone would be happier without it. By the way, during this entire interview, Chun's daughter, Shi Ying, had been listening in silence. And then at one point, she texted our team, this is brutal. We didn't get a chance to ask her what she meant by that until we were finally in the car alone with her. I've never asked him those questions. So today, it's, it's actually my first time listening to him explain himself. Really? In the like, really clear manner. You see, Shi Ying and her father have often disagreed on what it means to be Taiwanese. And when it comes to identity, Shi Ying says she is only Taiwanese, not Chinese. It was something she arrived at when she was living abroad in the United Kingdom several years ago. In 2014, a major political protest was unfolding back home in Taiwan. It was called the Sunflower Movement, and people in the UK were asking her about it. I still remember that moment I had to make, make a decision, whether I'm a Chinese or a Taiwanese. And especially when you are a foreigner in a foreign country, that feeling stronger that you have to identify yourself. So you get to choose what you yeah, want to be I have with those to. people. Shi Ying, who's 41, has lived almost her whole life in a democratic Taiwan with an open civil society. During the Sunflower Movement, young people occupied the legislative building in Taipei, pushing back against what they say was the then Taiwanese president's over-eagerness to strengthen ties with China. Some of the protesters were Shi Ying's friends. They were putting themselves in danger. I think there's maybe only one reason, because we care about the country, we care about the system, we care about how we are going to live in this island. When you say we care about the country, you mean Taiwan, the island? Yes, the island. Well, the (laughs) environment. I don't know how people call it when their country is not recognized as a country. We have our president, we have our own constitution, we have paid our own taxes to our government. We also have our own territory. So what are they missing that we are not a country? So when you first started 
feeling the urge to describe yourself as Taiwanese. Did that feel political? Yes. <laughs> Why? Because if it's not political, you don't have to say it. At this point, Shein gets a call from her mom. We're meeting Shein's mother and father separately today because they're divorced. I think she's a bit anxious. <laughs> really? Like, she's actually anxious kind of on behalf of her daughter, Shein, who doesn't want to get in trouble at work for speaking publicly about politics. That's why we are only using first names for both Shein and her mother, Jinjin. We're meeting Jinjin at her office in Taoyuan. <laughs> we tell her we're so happy to meet her, and Jinjin and Shein lead us inside. Unlike Xing's father, whose family has been in Taiwan for centuries, Jinjin's father first arrived on this island as a soldier with Chiang Kai-shek's army in the late 1940s. Jinjin says her father always hoped the nationalists would defeat the Chinese Communist Party so that he could return to China one day, his homeland. She says when Chiang Kai-shek set up his government here, he immediately forced everyone to speak Mandarin Chinese to enforce one unified language for the island of Taiwan. And young Jinjin spoke Mandarin really well. She says she was commended as a young schoolgirl because her Mandarin was so excellent. In fact, she won many speech and debate competitions and brought back awards for her school. But then her daughter Xiying chimes in to add one more detail. Xiying says any students who were caught publicly speaking languages other than Mandarin were punished. They had to kneel on the floor and wear a placard around their neck, announcing that they had broken the rules. Some were even fined. But Junjun says this wasn't strange to her. It's just the way it was back then. But many years later, after Taiwan had transitioned to democracy, Junjun's excellent Mandarin actually got her into trouble. She remembers this one time when she was in a taxi cab speaking Mandarin to the driver, and he thought her accent sounded too Chinese, and he suddenly made her get out of the car. That got her so angry, she thought, Am I not Taiwanese like you? I was born and raised here. Though to be clear, the line between being Taiwanese versus Chinese has always been blurred for her. She says, you should never forget your origins. The blood of your ancestors runs through your veins. So she says she is Chinese, but she's also lived in Taiwan her entire life. She loves this land. So she sees no point in picking whether she is Taiwanese or Chinese. The distinction is just bureaucratic to her. How do you feel about your daughter who says she is Taiwanese? And she says it very decisively now. How does that make you feel? She says she will always respect her daughter's decision to identify as Taiwanese. In fact, when Xiying lived abroad, Jinjin's friends asked if she was worried that her daughter would never return. But Jinjin says she was sure that her daughter would return to Taiwan because this is where she is from. And indeed, Xiying did come back home. In Taipei, I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Emily Fang.
This story was produced by Janaki Mehta and Mallory Yu with Hugo Pang. Our editor is Patrick Jaranwatananan. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Monday afternoon. The 81st Golden Globe Awards were given out last night. So how far have the ceremonies come since accusations of racial bias and corruption? That story's coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. A Monday upswing on Wall Street. The Dow picked up about six-tenths of a percent. S&P gained almost one-and-a-half percent, and the Nasdaq grew by two-and-two-tenths percent. Burlington-based audio and video editing software company Avid Technology is cutting jobs. Two months ago, Avid was acquired by the private equity firm STG in California. The Boston Business Journal reports the layoffs are a result of the company's transition from public to private. Avid makes Pro Tools and Media Composer technology, which are heavily used in producing Hollywood films. The company has 200 employees in the state. It's not clear how many will lose their jobs. It's 519. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, MathWorks.com slash MOS. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Officials have touted plans to build affordable housing over Boston public library buildings, but the cost of one project is more than $800,000 per unit. Matching math to public need and public policy tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. Start the day here. In the forecast for tonight, look for clear skies. Temperatures right about the mid-20s and then early tomorrow we should see clouds. Late tomorrow, rain. Lots of wind overnight tomorrow night. And uh, things should come to a calm end finally Wednesday afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-50s on Wednesday. So expect a lot of uh, melting of the snow from over the weekend and possibly some flooding as well. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Coming up, strangers can leave a lasting impact, especially in moments we need it most. In a few minutes, a Colorado man shares the story of his unsung hero, a nurse working at the hospital where his wife was receiving care. But first, top congressional leaders announced a bipartisan deal that sets spending for federal agencies for the rest of the fiscal year. This could avoid a government shutdown down if they finish the job on time. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer touted the significance today. The agreement now clears the way for Congress to act in the coming weeks to avoid a government shutdown, while also preserving key domestic programs that benefit millions of Americans. There is still a lot of work to do, though, and not a lot of time before some programs start to run out of money. Here to explain is NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. She is at the Capitol. Hey there. Deirdre, are you with us? 
We are going to hang on one second and see if we can get the latest details from Deirdre Walsh, who has been tracking them at the Capitol and who I hope is going to uh, appear shortly. But hold on. We may need to go to another story first. Hit my unsung hero and take. Beginning at the southern border. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Roger Lynn. On February 27, 2010, my wife, Veronica, was in the hospital having been diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer, which had metastasized to her abdomen and her bones. Her room was at the far end of the surgical floor and felt like a dark and forgotten corner. And then our unsung hero stepped in. Her name is Jennifer, and to this day I wish I had learned her last name. She was one of Veronica's nurses and had quickly become our favorite. On this particular day, she found me and said, a wonderful room with a view has just come open and I think Veronica would really enjoy it. She led me down the hall and into a room which was filled with light. And from the windows, there was a panoramic view of the Puget Sound, Whidbey Island, and the Olympic Mountains serving as backdrop for the whole scene. And it transformed the experience of being in that place. I remember sitting there quietly in the evening with my beautiful wife sleeping on the other side of the room as I watched the setting sun drop behind the mountains. Unfortunately, a week later, my world turned upside down and all the color drained out when Veronica threw a blood clot and very quickly died. But Jennifer had one more gift of kindness to bestow. The next day, I took a bouquet of flowers to the sixth floor nurse's station to say thank you for all of their support over the past two weeks. It was then that Jennifer found me. She took me by the hand and led me to one of the nurses' conference rooms, where she proceeded to tell me what an honor and privilege it had been to care for Veronica and her family. She had been touched by the experience and was truly saddened by her death. Jennifer didn't have to find me that day when the room with a view became available. She didn't have to pull me into a quiet room to tell me that knowing my wife had made a difference in her life. But she did. And her kindness was a beacon of light in the midst of a dark and painful time. Roger Lynn lives in Boulder, Colorado. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. Okay, and good news, I am told we do now have NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh on the line from the Capitol to tell us about this spending deal. Hey, Deirdre, can you hear me? I can. Hey, Mary Louise. Hooray. All right. So details, please. What is in this deal? 
It's a framework on how much to spend overall on federal programs this fiscal year, about $1.6 trillion through September. This deal basically sticks to the overall budget agreement that former Speaker Kevin McCarthy cut last year with President Biden when they negotiated a deal to avoid a debt default. Democrats say in this deal they prevented deeper spending cuts in domestic programs that conservatives wanted, and Republicans are touting the cuts to the IRS that they got to speed up a bit and a provision to claw back $6 billion in unspent COVID money. So big picture shutdown, no shutdown, where does this leave things? It's unclear. I mean, now the spending committees have to fill in the details for each federal agency, and they don't have a lot of time. On January 19th, if they can't pass the four, the first four bills for things like military projects, housing, energy programs, there could be a partial government shutdown. And then on February 2nd, there could be a full government shutdown if Congress still can't pass the rest of these annual spending bills. Let me focus you for a moment on the politics here. Speaker Johnson, obviously a Republican, signed onto this deal with Senator Schumer, a Democrat. How is it going over with House Republicans? You know, some conservatives on the right are not happy, and there's really been some resistance just in the last day. The House Freedom Caucus put out a statement right after the deal was announced, calling it, quote, a total failure. As you remember, conservatives were unhappy with that debt deal and those spending levels, and that led to former Speaker Kevin McCarthy's ouster in the fall. And some say they're disappointed that Johnson didn't fight to get deeper spending cuts. But spending bill... Spending deals in divided governments usually pass with significant bipartisan votes. So with a lot of the people who are complaining tend to vote against any deal that any Republican cuts with any Democrat. Just to your point that uh, the previous attempt led to Kevin McCarthy's ouster. Are there any signs that Speaker Johnson is now in trouble? No, not right now. I mean, no one is calling for him to go, but conservatives really wanted to use this spending fight as leverage to force some policy changes. The speaker led a big delegation of Republicans last week to the southwest border, and a number of conservatives are saying if the Biden administration doesn't shut down the border, House Republicans should shut down the government. So there's really a lot of politics colliding here on immigration and government funding. Yeah. Speaking of the border, this deal does not include any policy changes to do with the border. It also does not include funding for the wars in Ukraine and Israel. Is there any progress to move legislation on those fronts? There are signs a deal could be emerging. Uh, Their Senate bipartisan negotiators could come out with the deal as early as this week, and that could be attached to a spending package. But again, on any bipartisan immigration deal, you're going to have complaints from the left from progressives who don't want to change current policy and on the right where conservatives just don't think there's enough changes. And PR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 25 minutes. The presidents of Harvard and Penn resigned under pressure. We'll hear about a billionaire investor, Bill Ackman, who's waging a campaign against higher ed and the media. That story is still ahead. Celtics try for a second straight win against the Pacers in Indiana tonight. Tip-off is at 7 o'clock. Boston will be without its best player, Jason Tatum, who's going to be out with an ankle sprain. Bruins are in Colorado tonight to face the Avalanche. Bees are still atop the Atlantic Division after they won five of their last six matches. Tonight's start time is 9.05. 
And Chaim Bloom has a new gig in baseball. Red Sox former chief baseball officer is going to become an advisor to the president of baseball operations for the St. Louis Cardinals. He left the Red Sox last year. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com and Uncommon Feasts offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm Scott Tong. Kids are skipping school more than they did pre-pandemic. Absenteeism has doubled by some measures. And some school districts are using old-school truant officers to find kids playing hooky. Is it working? Pay attention, class, next time here and now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Israel has killed a senior Hezbollah commander in an airstrike in southern Lebanon, raising concerns its raging war with Hamas in Gaza may be spreading beyond the region. NPR's Jane Araf has more from Beirut. Hezbollah announced the killing of Commander Wissam Hassan al-Tawil in a brief statement saying he had died on the path to liberate Jerusalem. Attacks along the Israeli-Lebanese border have escalated since Lebanon says Israel killed a senior Hamas official and six other people in a drone strike on a Beirut office building last week. Israel has not claimed responsibility. Hezbollah launched what it said were more than 60 missiles at an Israeli military base in what it called an initial retaliation to the Beirut assassination. Tawil is believed to be the highest-ranking Hezbollah commander killed since the fighting began. Jane Araf, NPR News, Beirut. Former President Donald Trump is turning up the heat on one of his Republican rivals in the presidential race, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more. The former president continues to maintain double-digit leads in primary polls, but Haley has been gaining ground. In response, Trump's campaign ads went up on air for the first time in New Hampshire, attacking Haley, who was Trump's ambassador to the U.N. He's also increasing his attacks on the campaign trail. Nikki Haley has been in the pocket of the open borders establishment donors her entire career, and uh, she's a globalist, you know, she likes the globe. I like... America first. She says Trump is getting nervous. Last week, her campaign announced that she had raised $24 million in the fourth quarter, a large infusion of cash at a key moment in the race. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher today. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullen. Some belt tightening on Beacon Hill. Governor Maura Healey is announcing spending cuts to cover for a roughly billion-dollar shortfall in tax revenue. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the cuts will affect a number of health and social service programs. The Healey administration proposes cutting $375 million from over 60 programs, including mass health fee-for-service payments and a state supplement to Social Security. State tax collections have fallen short for six months straight, creating a projected billion-dollar funding gap. Massachusetts Administration and Finance Secretary Matthew Gorkowitz says slow growth and falling sales tax collections are affecting revenue. Look, the economy is growing. It's not growing as fast as we anticipated, and it's resulting in us making some mid-year adjustments, which I think are both reasonable and expected. The spending cuts will be implemented in the coming days. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 
There's an inequitable distribution of working heat lamps at outdoor MBTA stations, according to analysis by the Boston Globe. It finds nearly all the heat lamps at stops that serve Newton and Brookline worked, and a large number of the non-functional lamps are on the branch of the Silver Line that cuts through Roxbury. The T told the Boston Globe that the agency is working to repair the lamps, but that projects that affect safety come first. Many people across the state are still digging out after yesterday's snowstorm, and late tomorrow there'll be something else to reckon with. Here's WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Another storm on the way arrives tomorrow evening, a mostly rain and wind event, although it does start as a brief burst of snow outside of 495 before the changeover tomorrow evening. The heaviest rain overnight tomorrow into pre-dawn Wednesday. Downpours, embedded thunder possible, one to two inches of rain total. Localized flooding and strong wind too, gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour in much of the eastern part of the state. 50 to 60 miles per hour at the coast. I can't roll out an isolated gust to 70 on Cape Cod. So I do anticipate scattered outages and damage. The worst wind midnight to 6 a.m. Wednesday. It'll be mild too in the 50s before falling through the 40s Wednesday afternoon. 30 degrees now in Boston at 534. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 60 years, with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com There is a flood watch and high wind watch in effect for tomorrow night through Wednesday afternoon. Some wind gusts could reach, as Danielle said, as high as about 50 or 60 miles an hour. Heavy rain tomorrow night could force flooding as it melts some of the snowpack from the weekend. Stay tuned to WBUR for updates on the forecast. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Let's talk about how the woman responsible for bringing down the Confederate flag in her state became the woman who failed to identify slavery as the cause of the Civil War. Of course, we're talking about former South Carolina governor and presidential hopeful Nikki Haley. While Donald Trump is still dominating in GOP primary polling, Haley presents the most credible challenge to the former president. She had a tough couple of weeks after a voter asked her this at an event. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. This was a surprise to anyone familiar with Haley's legacy as the governor who ordered the Confederate flag to be removed from the grounds of the state capitol. That happened after the 2015 shooting of black parishioners at a church in Charleston. NPR national political correspondent Sarah McCammon covered that moment and Nikki Haley herself for years, and she's here in the studio. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Ari. We just heard about those two contrasting moments, Haley on the Confederate flag, 
and Haley talking about states' rights as the reason for the Civil War. What do you make of that juxtaposition? You know, it is a striking contrast, Ari. I mean, I covered Haley's response to the mass shooting in 2015 at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. That was when a white supremacist walked into a historically black church and murdered nine people during a Bible study. Haley was there in the aftermath in Charleston addressing the people of South Carolina, and she expressed the collective grief that everyone was feeling. We woke up today, and the heart and soul of South Carolina was broken. And so we had some grieving, too. And, you know, Ari, as you alluded to, it wasn't long afterward that she led the effort to remove the Confederate flag from South Carolina's statehouse grounds. Now, she threaded the needle pretty carefully on that. She noted that for many people in South Carolina, the flag stood for their heritage and their history. But she said for many others, it was a, quote, deeply offensive symbol of a brutally oppressive past. And she said that it was in the aftermath of that shooting, it was time to take the flag down. Here she is signing the bill ordering the flag's removal. Today, I'm very proud to say that it is a great day in South Carolina. So yeah, her remarks last month in which she seemed almost kind of murky about the causes of the Civil War, they did feel a little bit like whiplash. Well, what might have motivated her in that setting to answer the question that way? Well, as you know, Haley is running for the Republican nomination against the overwhelming frontrunner Donald Trump, who has repeatedly and from the beginning of his first run for president in 2016, used racially charged rhetoric to appeal to the party's base. And Haley is also certainly aware, particularly having grown up in the Deep South, of the fact that many Americans Americans, particularly on the right, still don't fully acknowledge the centrality of slavery as the cause of the Civil War. And, you know, it was just Saturday that former President Trump said during an event in Iowa that the Civil War might not have been necessary, that it could have been ended through negotiation. I'm not sure how you negotiate about something like slavery, but it just shows that Republican politicians are hesitant in many cases to speak directly about this in front of their voters. You hear Haley focusing on ideas like limited government and individual freedom, ideas that are much more popular with the voters she's trying to reach. And she has walked her statement back to some degree at a another event in New Hampshire, she was asked to explain why she had not identified slavery as the cause of the Civil War. I was thinking past slavery and talking about the lesson that we would learn going forward. I shouldn't have done that. I should have said slavery. But in in my mind, that's a given that everybody associates the Civil War with slavery. And she went on to say, hey, look at my record in South Carolina, alluding, of course, to her record in the aftermath of that racist shooting and her efforts to remove the Confederate flag. Let's pull the camera back a little bit, because back when Haley ordered the Confederate flag removed, she represented the future face of the Republican Party. The GOP was trying to expand the tent, bring in a wider group of voters to help it survive as America became more diverse. Then the party nominated Trump in 2016. And if polls are correct, it looks ready to do so again. Does Nikki Haley fit into the GOP of this moment? In a way, nobody that isn't Donald Trump fits into the GOP of this moment. But I think what Nikki Haley really embodies is the profile of the kind of Republican the party thought it wanted more than a decade ago. So after its midterm losses in 2012, there was, I'm sure you remember, what was known as the Republican autopsy. And one of the things that party leaders said is they needed to reach out to voters of color and respond to the country's changing demographics. So Haley, as a woman and as the daughter of Indian immigrants, would seem to fit that bill. But that is not the direction the party wound up going, with, of course, Donald Trump as the nominee 
in 2016 and 2020, and it looks like very likely again in 24. Well, apart from this particular moment, how has Haley talked about race as she has launched and conducted her presidential campaign? She's made her family's immigration story and her own race a central part of her pitch, but in a very strategic way as she talks to Republicans. She spoke about it almost a year ago when she first launched her campaign. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. Not black, not white. I was different. But my mom would always say your job is not to focus on the differences, but the similarities. And that second line is the key. Haley, when she talks about her identity, stresses that she doesn't believe in a glass ceiling, for example. And she describes America as a place where anyone can succeed, regardless of their identity. So she represents diversity, but she talks about it in a way that appeals to Republican voters. Have you seen other examples of Haley sending mixed messages in how she talks about other issues? I mean, I'm thinking about... The Trump presidency, for example, after January 6th, she said history would judge him harshly. But on the campaign trail, she has even said she would pardon him if he's found guilty. Is she trying to have it both ways? You know, so often when I listen to Nikki Haley, I hear somebody who is trying to balance the demands of the Republican base, uh, base very supportive of Trump, with the wishes of more moderate Republicans and swing voters that she would need were she to somehow win the nomination. You know, I hear this on abortion. She says she's pro-life but doesn't judge people for being pro-choice. And yes, I hear it when she talks about Trump. Um, She said he was the right candidate in 2016, but she says he's now bringing chaos to the party and the country, and it's time to move on. Is that working for her? I mean, yes and no. She's not the front runner. Nobody but Trump is. And the fact that Haley has been gaining ground in the polls, particularly in New Hampshire, the fact that we and so many other journalists are talking about her, I think indicates the strategy is working to some degree about as well as could be expected. Haley's critics have leveled this attack against her on other issues besides Trump and the Civil War. They accuse her of representing herself one way to some people and a different way to others. Is that an accurate representation? From my observation, Ari, if there is a message that comes through consistently from Nikki Haley, it's that she believes in the fundamentals of the American democratic system and in the ideal of the American dream. And and this may be a product of her parents' immigrant experience, which, again, was central to the way she presented herself when she launched this campaign. If you look at survey data, immigrants to the U.S. tend to express a feeling that their lives are better here than they would have been in their countries of origin. And Haley seems to strongly buy into that. You know, she strikes me perhaps most of all as a pragmatist. She's a skillful politician, and she will say what she thinks she needs to say to move the ball forward in a very difficult race. That is NPR national political correspondent Sarah McCammon. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This year's awards season kicked off last night with the Golden Globes. Aside from the various winners and losers, the Golden Globes themselves had something at stake. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which ran the Globes for decades, disbanded last year after a series of financial and diversity-related scandals. The Globes are now under new management. Glenn Weldon, host on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, is here to discuss all the takeaways from last night, including whether the Globes have redeemed themselves. Hey there, Glenn. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it is going fine. My question is, how'd the ceremony go last night? 
Well, I mean, let's start with the good stuff, okay? Actor Lily Gladstone won Best Actress in a Motion Picture Drama for Killers of the Flower Moon, and her acceptance speech wasn't simply historic, she is the first Native actor to win a Golden Globe, but is also really good. Native actors used to speak their lines in English, and then the sound mixers would run them backwards to accomplish Native languages on camera. This is an historic win. It doesn't belong to just me. I'm she began her speech right by now. speaking the Blackfeet language and ended by dedicating her win to every little res kid who has a dream. Mm, okay, let's stay with the good stuff a moment longer. <laughs> the the uh-huh. other winners I saw Oppenheimer did great. Yeah, I mean, the Globes award both film and TV, and the big winner, as you say, was Oppenheimer, which took home Best Drama, Director, Actor, Supporting Actor, and Score. That's five out of the eight nominations it received. Succession won Best TV Drama and three acting awards. In the TV miniseries category, Netflix's Road Rage Revenge Comedy Beef took home the Globe. Creator Lee Sun Jin accepted the award and gave credit where it's due. You know, our show is actually based on a real road rage incident that actually happened to me, so I'd be remiss not to thank that driver. Um, uh, sir, I, I hope you honk and yell and inspire others for years to come. <laughs> uh, Beef also took home lead actor and actress in a miniseries for Stephen Yun and Ali Wong. Okay, uh, but, you knew the but was coming, uh-huh. the ceremony itself, and the, this central question, did the Globes write the ship? Well, uh, apart from some good speeches, it was an oddly muted telecast, very low energy, kind of slack. you got to put some of it up to the evening's host, Joe Coy. Uh, Coy is a hugely popular stand-up comedian who sells out huge arenas, but his opening monologue was filled with joke after joke that just didn't land. I mean, his vibe was off from the very beginning, and he could tell he was bombing. He tried to make light of it. Yo, I got the gig ten days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Yo, shut up. You got, you're kidding me, right? Slow down. I wrote some of these, and they're the ones you're laughing at. Look, uh, when you are only a few minutes into your set and you're already throwing your writers under the bus, that's not a good sign. Now, in his defense, hosting a Hollywood award ceremony is a famously tough gig. I mean, yeah, there's an open bar at the Globe. That helps. But your audience is a bunch of stiff showbiz types in very tight, very expensive clothing who spend the whole night distracted. They're worrying about losing or they're worrying about what they'll say if they win. Classic tough crowd. Um, and the whole thing of reading the tea leaves. I mean, the, the Golden Globes come first, but the, the biggie, uh-huh. big, big is the Oscars in Anything to read from what happened last night as we look ahead to what comes next? I don't know. It's hard to say. The Globes are weird. Uh, comedian Guy Branham tweeted last night that the Globes are really an audition for the Oscars ceremony. Your speech has to prove that you can deliver, you know, a memorable moment. And if that's true, Lily Gladstone's speech for Killers of the Flower Moon really delivered big time. She nailed that audition. Glenn Weldon hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Glenn, thank you. My pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow night on WBUR, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Listen live at 7 tomorrow here at 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. In the forecast, got a nice dry night ahead on the chilly side, temperatures in the mid-20s. Tomorrow, gray skies to start with temperatures in the mid-40s. Then things get interesting right about this time tomorrow. A drenching rain throughout the region along with powerful winds. Wednesday, the rain should keep coming in the morning with the high winds continuing. 
Temperatures could make it all the way to the mid-50s on Wednesday. Means a lot of melting going on, especially combined with the rainfall. So look out for flooding in low-lying areas and in places where the snow is covering up the storm drains. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com and Feldman Geospatial. Presenting live jazz weekly at the Long Live Brewery and Tap Room. Learn more at longlivebeerworks.com slash Boston. Bruins and Celtics are both on the road tonight. Seltzer is still in Indiana for another game against the Pacers. The Bruins uh, take to the ice in Colorado against the Avalanche. Boston's a big music town. Major acts play the big venues like MGM Music Hall or TD Garden. But there's also a lot of local talent and smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night. Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire. Jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A civil trial is now underway in New York City against the National Rifle Association, the country's most prominent pro-Second Amendment group. Opening statements come just days after the resignation of the NRA's longtime leader, Wayne LaPierre, and a $100,000 settlement with a former executive. Samantha Max of member station WNYC was in court today. She is here with us now. Hey, Samantha. Hi. Hi. Set us up here. This is day one of the trial. Who is suing and why? So New York Attorney General Letitia James is suing on behalf of the state of New York. Uh, She filed this lawsuit in 2020, alleging that the NRA, which was originally chartered here in New York, was conducting just widespread corruption with its leadership. Um, so her lawsuit was saying that the nonprofit was using the organization's money on personal costs, things like trips to the Bahamas, rides on private jets, fancy meals, stays at luxury hotels. The list goes on and on and on. Um, and all told, James says that just in a three-year span, uh, $64 million were spent on personal expenses instead of what the NRA was actually supposed to be spending the money on. Mm-hmm. Okay, and again, this is not a criminal case. This is civil. What is Letitia James trying to accomplish? So New York has laws that govern how its nonprofits are supposed to operate. And the AG's office says the NRA violated those laws and misused the charitable funds that should have been spent on the actual mission of the NRA. Um, And today in court, the assistant attorney general who gave the opening statement was making the argument that the organization's leaders really breached the trust of donors who spent money that they had earned, that they had worked hard to get. And instead of using that money toward NRA official purposes, they were spending it on these 
personal trips and dinners and all kinds of things. So the AG's office is trying to recoup the money that was lost and also bar the defendants from serving on any nonprofit board in New York in the future. So it's going after both the NRA as a whole and also these particular leaders who are named in the lawsuit. Got it, got it. And what's the defense? What's the NRA saying about the case? So they give their opening statement tomorrow since things were a little delayed today. So we'll know more then. Uh, But the NRA has been for years trying to get this case dismissed. They've accused the attorney general of being biased against them and have cited comments that she's made in the past in the group. Um, And last week, the NRA said in a statement that it is committed to good governance and is taking taking steps to address these allegations that were laid out in the lawsuit. And I suppose for people listening, the the wider question will just be what could this case mean for the future of the NRA? I think that's a really good question. You know, the NRA has really risen in power over the years as gun rights have become such a central part of the political debate here in the U.S. And this trial is just the latest development in a years-long scandal that has really kind of sullied the reputation of the NRA. The organization has filed for bankruptcy, though a judge later tossed that request. Wayne LaPierre, the longtime leader, has stepped down. Um, So the AG was not able to fully dissolve the NRA as she had initially hoped, but it really remains to be seen at this point how the organization will bounce back. Samantha Max covers public safety for WNYC. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Mary Louise. Several of the oldest and most prestigious colleges and universities in the country are defending themselves against critics who are trying to remake the institutions. One of the most aggressive campaigns comes from billionaire Bill Ackman. His goal is to transform higher education. And now he's also targeting the media. NPR's David Gura is following this saga. Hey, David. Hey, Ari. Tell us more about Bill Ackman and what his goal is. Well, Bill Ackman is a hedge fund manager with two degrees from Harvard. He is notorious for having these long, drawn-out fights with companies and other high-profile investors. He has a reputation for being really ruthless. Well, now Ackman is taking a playbook he has developed over decades fighting tooth and nail in corporate boardrooms to this new war he is waging on college campuses. Ackman wants to stop what he calls the ideological takeover of his alma mater. He said that today on X, the social media site formerly known as Twitter, where Ackman has more than a million followers. It's clear he's outraged at Harvard and its emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion, what's better known as DEI. He says that policy framework is racist, and Ackman argues it's inherently inconsistent with basic American values. Now he wants to bring that fight, Ari, against DEI to other schools around the country. How has he waged this campaign? Well, it began as a much more narrowly focused effort to oust the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT because of how they struggled to respond to Hamas's attack on Israel on October the 7th. Ackman and others believe that reflected a double standard at colleges and universities of what speech is permissible and protected. He and others say administrators have tolerated anti-Semitism. Well, in recent weeks, we've seen other deep-pocketed donors weaponize their philanthropy in response. They have cut their giving, and some have cut ties with colleges and universities altogether. That pressure campaign already has led to the resignations of Penn's president, Liz McGill, and Harvard's president, Claudine Gay. Her tenure ended as a chorus of voices amplified plagiarism allegations against her. 
Well, Ackman has now made that his main cause, but unfortunately for Ackman, it has brought some negative attention to his own family. The news organization Business Insider reported Ackman's wife plagiarized some of her academic work. And what has Ackman's reaction been to the Business Insider reporting? Well, that article has made Bill Ackman livid, and I should say he has repeatedly declined my requests for an interview. Business Insider's editor-in-chief says the site stands by its reporting. Ackman's wife, Neri Oxman, who used to be a professor of design at MIT, has apologized. But Ackman says he and Oxman plan to dispute, quote, a substantial number of facts in that story. And with his wife now in the spotlight, Ackman is doubling down even more. He has promised to use the power of artificial intelligence to scour each and every Business Insider article for plagiarism. It seems to be his new crusade, and he said he's willing to invest in an AI company to identify plagiarists in media and in higher education. AI's ability to do that, he says, makes it like a tactical nuke. And Ari, this is a weapon he seems to have no compunction using in what's become really a no-holds-barred campaign. This seems like a huge cultural fight. How likely is Ackman to succeed? Well, there are lots of questions about how this would work in practice. Uh, I said Ackman is ruthless. He is also relentless. Ackman's past fights have dragged on for years, some at great personal expense. Stepping back, Ari, what we're seeing here is another example of the role big money is playing in the culture wars. On the one side, you've got a donor with very deep pockets who wants to change institutions. Of course, many of those institutions are also very wealthy, and they're going to fight back. NPR's David Gura, thank you. Thanks, Ari. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrives in Israel as part of a trip to try to curb Israeli attacks on Palestinians in Gaza and prevent a wider regional war. This is a conflict that could easily metastasize, causing even more insecurity and even more suffering. It's Monday, January 8th, and this is All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, at least 11 people have been injured, one critically after an explosion in downtown Fort Worth, Texas this afternoon. We'll have the latest. NASA launches America's first robotic mission to the moon's surface since the Apollo era. The privately built Peregrine 1 probe had a flawless launch, but it's now having problems. And the University of Michigan is playing for the college football national championship. What the team's success is doing for the popularity of the Cartier White Glasses brand? Coming up, it's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden's speech in South Carolina today was interrupted by protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. As NPR's Asma Hollard reports, the conflict in the Middle East continues to follow the president as he kicks off his campaign for re-election here at home. A group of protesters shouted, cease fire now, as the president was speaking at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston. That's the site of a 2015 hate crime in which nine people were murdered by a white supremacist. The protesters were escorted out and others in the crowd began chanting, four more years. But Biden spoke to the concerns. I understand their passion. And I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. More than 20,000 people have been killed, according to health officials in Gaza. Biden has encouraged Israel to protect civilians, but has also continued to support Israel's military campaign and has not called for a ceasefire. Asma Khalid, NPR News. U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas is in Eagle Pass, Texas today on a visit to the southwest border. Texas Public Radio's Marianne Navarro has details. Eagle Pass is one of the most heavily crossed sections of the U.S.-Mexico border and has become the center of the GOP's fight with the Biden administration over immigration. Operations at one international bridge in the city resumed last week after it shut down following the ongoing influx of migrants. Secretary Mayorkas' visit comes a little less than a week after a Republican congressional delegation, including House Speaker Mike Johnson, visited the border city. House Republicans continue to push to impeach Mayorkas for what they say is a failure to protect the border. An initial hearing as part of impeachment proceedings against Mayorkas is scheduled to take place this Wednesday. I'm Marian Navarro in San Antonio. The IRS says it will start processing 2023 tax returns at the end of the month. NPR Scott Horsley says for most taxpayers to file, the deadline is still April 15th. The IRS says tax season will officially begin on Monday, January 29th. That's when the tax collector will start accepting and processing returns, although most tax preparers will accept paperwork before that and simply hold on to it until the official start date. The IRS expects to process nearly 129 million individual tax returns this year. For the first time, the agency is offering a pilot program that will allow taxpayers with simple returns in a dozen states to file directly with the government, electronically, for free. That will be rolled out in phases through the middle of March. Last year, about two-thirds of tax returns resulted in refunds. The IRS says most refunds are delivered in less than three weeks. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A strong start to the week on Wall Street. The Dow is up 216 points. The Nasdaq rose 319 points today. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Employers in Massachusetts say they feel pretty good about how their businesses will fare over the first half of this year. The Associated Industries of Massachusetts released the latest business confidence index today. Here's WBUR's Aninjor and Wameka. 
The report measures how employers feel about their company's prospects and the direction of the state and national economies. The so-called Future Index increased more than two and a half points in December compared to the previous month. Christopher Guerin is with Associated Industries of Massachusetts. Employers are feeling pretty good about the first six months of 2024. You never know how things are going to play out. But right now, I think employers are in a pretty good place about uh, certainly the first half of this year. Guerin says expected interest rate cuts helped boost business confidence. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. The city of Somerville is running an overnight warming center for the remainder of the winter. Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne says the warming center will open tonight just before 7 o'clock and stay open until 7 tomorrow morning. It'll be open seven nights a week. The center will be open to any adult resident and will have free hot and cold meals available. It's on the second floor of the Armory on Highland Avenue in Somerville. Officials in Worcester say a worker shortage contributed to a longer-than-anticipated cleanup from the snowstorm yesterday. Public Works Commissioner Jay Fink says Worcester got more than 15 inches of snow in places, several more inches than expected. The city is short plow drivers and mechanics, as are other communities around the state. Some trucks and plows broke down during the storm, and others had to come in and pick up the slack. Those equipment that were doing, say, a dozen streets, well, now they were doing 18 streets, so it took them that much longer to do. It didn't leave me with a warm and fuzzy that we did a great job. I know that everyone that was out there was busting their humps. It was a lot of work, and it was a long night for a lot of people. And meanwhile, a second storm is making its way toward Massachusetts. This one should bring a deluge of rain. Here's WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce. Still cleaning up from yesterday's storm and spots as our next one moves in tomorrow. A mainly rain and wind event starts as a brief burst of snow along and outside of 495 tomorrow evening before changing over, according to two inches of snow possible before the flip to rain there. Heavy rain tomorrow night into pre-dawn Wednesday, one to two inches. Localized flooding, isolated thunder. The heaviest rain is over 4 to 6 a.m. Wednesday, with just a few rain showers after that. The wind will be a big story. Many gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour. 50 to 60 miles per hour at the coast of Cape Cod. Scattered outages and damage. Highs in the 50s fall into the 40s Wednesday afternoon. Getting colder right now in Boston. 29 degrees at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. NASA's got a new strategy to get to the moon at a discount, but a first test of that strategy has not gone so well. We've got an update on this morning's Peregrine One lunar mission coming up a little later in the show. But first, Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Israel. It's the latest stop in a week-long tour of the Mideast aimed at trying to contain the war in Gaza. This is his fourth trip to Israel since early October when Hamas attacked Israel, killing some 1,200 people. Secretary Blinken arrived in Tel Aviv shortly after an Israeli airstrike killed a senior Hezbollah commander in southern Lebanon. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam is with us from Israel. Hi there. Hi, Ari. So Secretary Blinken has been on this multi-stop tour meeting with Turkish and Arab leaders. Can you give us a better sense of his agenda? He has a full agenda. As you mentioned, one of the things he's trying to do is prevent the war in Gaza from spreading throughout the region, particularly between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah militia. You know, we're seeing increasingly deadly skirmishes and attacks between the two sides 
along Israel's northern border with Lebanon. But Blinken is also trying to ensure more humanitarian aid gets into Gaza. You know, there are severe shortages of food and water there. He's also urging regional players to get involved with shaping Gaza's future once the war is over. And finally, Ari, uh, Blinken is expected to push Israeli leaders to scale back uh, their offensive, this aerial bombardment of Gaza that's now entered into its fourth month. Let's talk more about the situation with Israel and Lebanon, because as we mentioned, a Hezbollah commander was killed in an Israeli airstrike earlier today in Lebanon, less than a week after the assassination of a senior Hamas leader there. Many believe Israel was also behind that. So is there any indication that Israel will listen to what Blinken has to say? Well, Israeli leaders have said they'll deliver a decisive military blow to Hezbollah if it doesn't agree to a deal to pull back its forces from the border. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, he was visiting soldiers along the Lebanon border today. And he said, you know, the military would do everything to restore security in the area. And he added that it would be preferable if that could be done without what he called a wide-ranging campaign, but that it wouldn't stop Israel. Also, the U.S. and Israel appear to have different ideas about Gaza post-war. The White House would like to see some regional buy-in to support Gaza, you know, once the fighting is over. And uh, there are questions about who would be responsible for security and who would govern Gaza and, you know, who would pay for reconstruction once the war is over. The U.S. has been urging Israel to ease off its intensive bombing campaign of Gaza. Around 23,000 people have died there since the war began in October, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Does it look like Israel has started to change its strategy? Well, last week, the Israelis announced they were pulling back some troops from the north and would concentrate their efforts in the south of Gaza. And there's been talk for the past week or so that there is a shift in Israeli strategy, you know, doing more targeted attacks. And this could be in response to repeated American calls, but it's still unclear what this new phase will really look like. The Israelis may be anticipating more difficult conversations with Secretary Blinken. And, you know, as the U.S. and its allies put pressure on Israel to scale down the fighting and allow more humanitarian aid into Gaza. So who will Blinken meet with in Israel? He'll have a round of meetings starting Tuesday with political leaders, and that includes Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He'll sit down with the war cabinet, and then he's going to have a one-on-one with Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant. On Wednesday, he's going to go out to the occupied West Bank to meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. And then there's just one last stop after that on this tour, and that's to Cairo to meet Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. And Egypt is a critical player and negotiator, uh, you know, throughout this Gaza conflict. St. Pierre's Jackie Northman, Israel. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ari. Tonight, the University of Michigan Wolverines face off against the University of Washington Huskies for the College Football National Championship. If you have been watching, you know the number one ranked Wolverines defense came up with a new way to celebrate turnovers early last season. The player who gets the takeaway wears Cartier sunglasses on the sidelines. Bryce Huffman in Michigan reports on why the celebration has special cultural significance in the Detroit area. During a football game in 2022, former Michigan defensive back R.J. Moten made an interception. Then he headed to the sidelines, 
There, his teammates handed him a pair of Cartier sunglasses. RJ Moten with the cool shades on oh, Those are the buffs right there. Got the Cartiers. For anyone who has spent time in Detroit, these sunglasses are known as buffs. For Michigan football, the sunglasses are a reward for getting a takeaway on defense. For black and brown Detroiters, though, they are so much more. I bought my first pair of buffs when I was in the seventh grade. This is Detroiter and rapper Shyvest Smith, better known by his stage name, Icewear Bezo. By the time Smith began rapping in the mid-2000s, he says buffs were already a big deal for people in the city. You immediately know whoever got them glasses on, they crossed some type of milestone in their life to where they, they, they are right. They doing good mentally, financially, however it may be, they, they doing well for themselves. Jewelry and cars have long been seen as status symbols in American culture. But for Detroiters specifically, Smith says buffs are in their own lane. Growing up, when I used to put them buffs on, bro, I felt like Superman, like I transformed, like I'm a whole nother person. Buffs have become synonymous with Detroit rappers and hustlers. They go for about $2,000 on average. Imani Mixon is an arts and culture writer from Detroit. She says high fashion items like buffs have helped people in the city look good and feel good for decades. Visually, it's stunning to see Black people choose to display how they want to be seen through these glasses. But they are expensive, and plenty of people have had their buffs stolen. You also maybe shouldn't wear buffs if you can't defend yourself. <laughs> that goes for any luxury item. Buffs in Detroit's unique rap style didn't get popular outside the Motor City until the past few years. Jennifer Owenu hosts the YouTube show Ask Jen. The social media influencer often starts dialogue within the city's Black community. Owenu says at first she didn't like seeing non-Detroiters rock the city's style. Because I felt like people really didn't know what was going on. Now that the University of Michigan Wolverine started the turnover buffs trend, Owenu has softened her stance. I feel like enough time has gone past that the connection between the buffs and how they celebrate and how they operate is very authentic to Detroit. After all, the Wolverines play just 45 minutes from Detroit. And now buffs are a cultural staple with multiple generations. Put the buffs on my jacket, K. Cunningham. Local rapper James Johnson, or Babytron, is just 23 years old. But even he wears buffs and raps about them. Johnson says it wasn't enough for him to simply wear a pair that someone gave him. You know, I hadn't earned a pair. I wanted to make money. It was only like, what, $2,000? So I just wanted to make $2,000 to get some buffs. When he was 17, he bought his first pair. I'm like 10 pairs in now, though. Although he won't be at this year's national championship game, Johnson is happy that his favorite college team is embracing a piece of Detroit culture. For NPR News, I'm Bryce Huffman in Detroit. Early this morning, NASA launched America's first robotic mission to the moon's surface since the Apollo era. Five, four, three, we have ignition and liftoff. But a few hours after launch, the mission appeared to be in trouble. NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield is here to talk about what happened. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Ari. First, what's the latest word on how the mission's going? Yeah, it doesn't appear to be going well, unfortunately. This was a small probe called Peregrine 1 from a company called Astrobotic out of Pittsburgh. It launched just after 2 a.m. local time from Florida. The spacecraft went up, its power turned on, it made contact with Earth, everything looked good. 
Sometime after that, though, something went wrong with the propulsion system. It's not quite clear what it was, but the spacecraft has been losing propellant, according to updates from the company. It's also struggled with power issues, though those might be fixed for the moment. Anyway, power and fuel are the two things you need to fly in space, so this looks like a pretty big problem. Oh, well, what was Peregrine 1 supposed to have been doing? Well, I mean, had it worked, this would have been the first American spacecraft to make a soft landing on the moon since the Apollo missions. Um, it was carrying several small NASA experiments and instruments, as well as payloads from the Mexican Space Agency and some private companies. Now, the bigger picture here is NASA wants to send astronauts back to the moon, but it's trying to do it as cheaply as possible. Part of that is subcontracting the smaller jobs to the private sector. Astrobotic is one of several companies that might one day be used by NASA to send supplies and equipment to its astronauts. So basically, think of this as like a trial of lunar FedEx. Only something. less reliable, it sounds like. And <laughs> this is not the only mission to the moon that's gone poorly lately. Why is it so hard to do something that the U.S. first did decades ago? Yeah, that's right. A Russian mission crashed on the moon last year. So did a commercial mission from Japan. You know, before all this happened, I spoke to John Thornton, the CEO of Astrobotic, and he told me when you're dealing with a satellite, that just goes around the Earth. If something goes wrong, you can fix it the next time it goes by. But a lunar mission has to travel from Earth to the moon and then land. These kinds of missions are constantly adjusting and have far less room for air. Going down to the surface of the moon, you have minutes or seconds, which is not really a practical time window to, to solve anything. So it, it's a, it's got to work. And this mission did not work. So what does that say more broadly about NASA's plan to rely on commercial companies to get it to the moon? Is that strategy going to get it into trouble? You know... This isn't the only mission. In fact, this was a relatively small mission. You might even call it one small step. Um, there's other ones coming from a company called Intuitive Machines next month and more. But you're right. The bottom line is uh, the commercial strategy, strategy is cheap, but it carries more risk. And, you know, that could make NASA's lunar ambitions uh, very uh, difficult, especially on a tight budget. We'll just have to see. One small step, one small stumble, perhaps. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, Americans finally seem to be feeling better about the future of the economy. What's causing the shift in consumer expectations? Stay tuned for business news tonight, starting in about 10 minutes. Wall Street numbers are next. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-sized puppetry. January 23rd to 29th. ArtsEmerson.org. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. A Monday upswing on Wall Street. The Dow picked up about six-tenths of a percent today. S&P gained almost one and a half percent, and the Nasdaq grew by two and two-tenths percent. Gas prices in Massachusetts are dropping. AAA Northeast says the statewide average is down three cents from last week to $3.17 a gallon. That's 17 cents lower than it was a month ago, but still 10 cents higher than the national average. This is WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program at Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Should have clear skies tonight, falling to about 25 degrees. Tomorrow, overcast to start, warming to the mid-40s. Then tomorrow evening, the wind starts to kick up. Could be strong enough to bring down power lines and some tree branches. Rain moves in, too, tomorrow night. Lots of rain, in fact. Could have more rain on Wednesday morning as temperatures inch up to the mid-50s. The warming temperatures combined with heavy rain could cause a lot of melting of the snowpack and maybe some flooding as well Tuesday night into Wednesday. This is 90.9 WBUR, 30 degrees in Boston at 621. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Three and a half days. That is how long it took the Pentagon to inform the White House that Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin had been hospitalized on New Year's Day. Austin, who was admitted following complications from an elective procedure, apologized over the weekend, saying, quote, I could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. Well, I want to bring in someone with first-hand knowledge of the challenges and the protocols of the role, Leon Panetta served as President Obama's Secretary of Defense. Secretary Panetta, welcome. Good to speak with you again. Good to be with you, Mary Louise. How big a deal is this? Well, uh, it uh, it certainly raises concerns because uh, it relates to something that is extremely important, uh, which is the uh, chain of command uh, that deals with our national security. And obviously, the Secretary of Defense uh, is a critical part of that chain of command in dealing with defense issues and nuclear issues and other areas related to our national security. So uh, when the Secretary uh, is, uh, for any reason, uh, incapacitated, uh, that that raises a lot of concerns about uh, who should be in touch and who should be in control of the issues that he normally deals with. I mean, can you think of anything like this happening in past? Is there precedent for a cabinet secretary to check into the hospital for days, including being admitted to intensive care, and not tell the White House or Congress or the Pentagon press corps or apparently most of his colleagues at the Pentagon? Yeah, it's a look, uh, there's no question that uh, Lloyd Austin has done a great job as secretary of defense at a critical time. A lot of tough issues to deal with, and I'm sure he's been on the road a lot dealing with our allies. Uh, having said that, there's also no question that a serious mistake was made here, uh, particularly and not just in not informing the public, but in particular not informing the president uh, or the national security team uh, for a number of days. I think uh, he was in the hospital on New Year's uh, Day yeah. uh, and did not uh, inform the president or the national security advisor until Thursday. Uh, that uh, that raises uh, serious concerns. Now, he's acknowledged the, the problem, taken full responsibility for it, uh, which is something new in Washington to have somebody uh, actually <laughs> take responsibility for screwing up. But, but uh, so, for, so forgive I my jumping in. Yeah, but how's it, how's, right it, how's it normally work? I mean, when you were defense secretary, if you had needed to go to the hospital for whatever reason, what's the checklist? 
Well, uh, the first call that would be made normally is to the chief of staff, to the president, uh, to inform him that, uh, you know, for some reason, uh, the secretary, I, the secretary would be incapacitated uh, and that uh, my deputy uh, would be uh, responsible for uh, running the uh, uh, Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, you know, I can remember as a former chief of staff to the president, that uh, we had a rule in the Clinton administration that uh, uh, any uh, cabinet member who was going to be incapacitated uh, was to inform the White House uh, as quickly as possible so that we were aware of it. Okay. I tweeted this morning about the situation, and I had a lot of people writing me back, pushing back, saying, look, the defense secretary has a right to privacy like anyone else. This was an elective medical procedure. It's none of our business. Secretary Panetta, is that true, or is the standard different for a defense secretary? Well, when you're when you're Secretary of Defense, uh, yes, you do you do have your privacy, and uh, and I, I certainly respect uh, Lloyd Austin because he is a private person, but at the same time, he is a public person, uh, being Secretary of Defense, uh, and carries responsibilities that are critical to our country. And for that reason, uh, you do have a responsibility uh, to inform certainly the president uh, and the national security team uh, when in any way you're going to be incapacitated. Uh, and that's that's the greatest failing here. Uh, you know, I, I understand the public, uh, you know, may may very well want to protect his privacy in some way. But when it comes to the president, and the national security team, they are responsible for protecting our country uh, and should be informed if anything is happening to the Secretary of Defense. That That's a requirement related to our national security. What are your questions at this point about the situation? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, right now uh, the reasons for his being hospitalized uh, have not been made public. Uh, but ultimately, the truth comes out. Uh, my experience in Washington tells me that in the end, the truth will come out. And it's probably better to come from him. I mean, the reality he, is that he was in intensive care. Uh, he had to take an ambulance in order to go to Walter Reed. Uh, he was hospitalized, continues to be hospitalized. So there's obviously something that is wrong here. And ultimately, I think the public needs to know, uh, once he leaves the hospital, that uh, his physical condition is one that uh, will not interfere with his duties as Secretary of Defense. No. You're getting at something that's been on my mind, which is what to make of the fact that we still don't know what is or was wrong with him. And this after he apologized and promised better transparency. Yeah, and I and as I said, I, I think that uh, while he has taken responsibility, I think he does understand that he should have done a better job in informing not just the public, but obviously his superiors, the president, national security team, mm -hmm. et cetera, uh, that ultimately, in order to really be able to get past uh, this situation, I think he's going to have to say uh, what the problem was and the fact that he is well healed uh, and can assume 
his responsibilities again. I think I think uh, the country needs to know that Secretary of Defense is not going to be incapacitated again. Um, does it raise questions for you that his deputy, who was on vacation in Puerto Rico, was told she would have to temporarily take over, but she was not told why? Yeah, that's a concern. I, I you know, I, I think... <laughs> I think if uh, the deputy is suddenly alerted that she's going to take over the responsibilities, I, I'm assuming that she assumed that uh, it involved him trying to take some time uh, from the job, uh, and that that's understandable. But whatever the reason is, uh, I think the deputy ought to know the reasons, because the deputy now is going to be uh, assuming some very important responsibilities, particularly now. You know, we're dealing with a war in Ukraine. We're dealing with a war in Israel. We're dealing with terrorist threats uh, uh, all over the Middle East. Uh, mm -hmm. It is really important that uh, the secretary has to be on top of that. Right. And, the, and the deputy has to be on top of that as well. That is former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta. Secretary Panetta, great to speak with you. Thank you. Good to be with you. And we wish Secretary Austin a full and speedy recovery. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address tomorrow night. Listen live at 7 o'clock tomorrow here at 90.9 WBUR as the mayor looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Bruins are out in Colorado tonight to face the Avalanche. Bees are still atop the Atlantic Division after they won five of their last six matches. Tonight's game starts at 9.05. Jason Tatum will not be on the court tonight in Indiana as the Celtics play the Pacers for their second straight game. Tatum has an ankle sprain. Got a dry and chilly night ahead. Temperatures in the mid-20s. Lots of clouds tomorrow should be in the mid-40s. There's a flood watch and high wind watch in effect from tomorrow night through Wednesday afternoon. Some of the wind gusts could reach as high as 60 miles an hour. Heavy rain tomorrow night could force some flooding, especially in low-lying areas. It's 630. WVUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. Habib, A-R-C-H dot com.